0: time for a quick story oftentimes artists put out their best work on releases that don't get the most attention they're best known for being part of a band and when that band was maybe at their peak or on the rise but then they put out so much more material after they leave the band or the band breaks up or whatever happens and and that solo material or other material in general doesn't get the mass public attention that it probably deserves based on the quality of the artist. This kind of came to mind with regard to Steve Hackett, who's I've had a couple times in, via interview. He was in Genesis for six years. He's put out so much varied solo material since the 1970s. Of course, most of the attention there goes to Genesis. Rick Emmett was the front man for Triumph for a long time, especially when they had their peak success in the early to mid-1980s, and then Triumph was done. He went on to produce, or, and by produce, I mean literally put out, so many solo projects with varied styles of music. We're talking about a guy who's a guitar instructor as well. So it's a lot of good work of course because it's not triumph a lot of people may not be familiar with this work and they couldn't even stream it until not that long ago as of the recording of this in august of 2020 we're about a month removed from the long deserved streaming release of 11 solo projects from rick emmett by Round Hill records july 10th they came out digitally so you can finally stream these if you have not already heard these albums Ten Invitations, Swing Shift, Rock Quartet, Live at Berkeley, Handiwork, Good Faith, Strung Out Troubadours. Part of his project is the Strung Out Troubadours. Live at Hughes Room, Liberty Manifesto, Push and Pull, Marco's Secret Songbook. All available, and we're talking to Rick Emmett about this. And since I got this interview set up, I've been going through all the albums and listening to bits of every single song on every album. And this discography... It is a wide variety. It is a lot of your solo material. It's not all of it either. I mean, there's more solo material out there, but it's 11 of these albums. So, Rick, if you're good with this, I thought we would go album by album and kind of kind of give the a, a few paragraphs if you will on each one of them, so anyone listening right now kind of has a as a a guide, if you will, to these albums so that sure. they can go through and listen to each one of them.
1: Yeah. Well, that's fine. I mean, if you think you can fit this into twenty five
0: minutes, <laughs> I and you probably yeah. you probably could go on for a lot on on each one of them. But I'll I'll essentially let you take the mic and go on each one. And I and I know on your and it, it's been written that the, especially ten invitations and swing shift and and rock quartet. It's kind of almost one two three right there. But let's start with that because chronologically we go back to the mid nineteen nineties and. 10 invitations and that one. And especially with the, I mean, the first thing I was struck by when I'm listening to this is the, is the smooth jazz sound on all of them. I'm, I will be perfectly honest with, with that. And with some of the earlier work and even with some of the scattered work throughout, um, I hear a lot of the vibe that I get when I would hear the old local forecast on the Weather Channel here in the United States. I loved listening to that. I, was a, I, I, I grew up watching that, and it's a lot of the similar music. I'm like, I love hearing this right here. So that's for anyone who is listening to this right now and only knows Triumph. They would listen to that and go, wait a second. But what was the angle you were taking when you started, especially with that first album, and go on Ten Minute Invitations?
1: okay um well uh, this was the, the the record that i'd always wanted to make since i was a kid was a a, a classical kind of nylon stream guitar kind of a thing and when, uh when i had sort of decided i'm giving up on the whole mainstream gonna try and get on the radio gonna try and um you know sell concert tickets uh, all of that stuff major label distribution didn't care just wanted to have my own little label indie thing in my basement my little little digital studio so that it was logical to start with a, with a classical guitar thing you know you're recording one thing and you, you learn how to edit and you know you, you can make a record so that's where i started and there were the the first three records you mentioned 10 invitations and then swing shift and rock quartet they kind of they all happened kind of at the same time but in succession in the sense that the material was i was learning how to record a band how to have other instruments involved Um, and the the swing shift record I think was the one that was sort of artistically and that's I think maybe why you're getting that smooth jazz thing Mm -hmm. there wasn't really smooth jazz and I'm making air quotes at this point but um, at that point but it was coming you know the radio was about to start making that uh, transition but but I had jazz as the First, sort of deep thing that I'd studied in college uh, at, at music, uh, you know, above and beyond all of the uh, folk and rock that I'd started with, just self-taught. So, and, and to me, jazz, you know, you leave the audience behind, but you're chasing the muse when you start to get into jazz because it's it's pretty deep. It's, it it has a lot of sophistication. So. You know, it was self-indulgence, but the, that those first three—that was the, the trilogy—and um uh, it was it, uh, critically well received. It, it, you know, and it was kind of like, "Hey, we're doing good enough that we can keep doing this. We're making our money back selling these records off the website." So it was like, "Hey, great! You know, let's keep going."
0: I also was reading that some of this also to do with your um, with your instructional. Um, like ch- kind of showing how to play the guitar. Uh, and I'm always drawn towards anyone who like who in in effect is teaching others how the instrument works, how the technique works, regardless of what it, vocals, drums, keyboard, whatever. Um what, and I'm branching off a little bit from the albums right here, but but how would you best describe? I'm trying to put this into words here. The the art of instructing on the guitar and how to, without necessarily being a teacher, but in effect of how to display through your playing, how to relay that to others so they can go, okay, I kind of get this. I kind of get that approach. And they can kind of feel that from your music.
1: Well, I mean, I I always did have a a kind of a, a pedantic academic sort of nature uh, when, and I taught college for two decades, so, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a part and parcel. I, I I wrote columns for Guitar Player magazine for 13 years, you know. I mean, it's kind of what I do. And I also feel like, you know, when I learn something, uh, then, you know, that's of interest to me. You know, hopefully that'll be of interest to others. Uh, but um, I'm sort of always pushing myself to try and move forward as, as an artist. And so... You know, I mean, going back to the trilogy and the records, like, uh, you know, I'm doing all of this different stuff in different styles, but, you know, then you figure it out and you sort of put them into little piles and you go, okay, so the solo-y sort of stuff that's more about just a single guitar doing things, that's going to be over here in the invitations pile. The stuff that's bluesy and rocking and, you know, the stuff that I started out with um, Eric Clapton and, and Jimmy Page and Jeff Peck and then the blues... And then that led to the Stevie Ray Vonish kind of world. That's going to go in the rock quartet pile. And then, you know, the the arch things, the jazz things, the the swinging kinds of things, that's going to go in the swing shift pile. You know, so um, and get that out of my system. There there wasn't, there was a little bit of singing on the swing shift record uh, and the rock quartet record, but not a lot. But then you know, then I sort of got back to, okay, singer-songwriter again, you know, let, let's go with that. Now, all of these things combine when you're in a rock band, you know, they, they inform what you're doing. And so this, your question is about, you know, how much of it is intellectual and how much of it is emotional? And then, you know, how much of it is you're being called by the music, uh, and then now you're using the music to, to call up to others, you know? So... I mean, in a way, you could say that's a kind of a spiritual thing. Almost, that's like um, you're not necessarily a teacher so much as you're somebody that's, you know, illustrating or, or demonstrating something and saying, you know, uh, this is kind of cool. If you want to get closer to your heart, if you want to get closer to your spirit, you know, these kinds of things can 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 make it happen. And you know, when you're in an arena rock band, those are it's a limited, it's a pretty narrow scope of what you can do. By going out on my own, I was able to open
0: that up. So I think that answers your question. It, it does. It <laughs> does. Yeah, in yes. its own way, it, it absolutely works. Let's. I'm. I'm, I'm going to actually skip past Levitt Bar- Berkeley and go right to Handiwork, and the the back to back albums in '02 and '03, Handiwork and Good Faith. Comment on those two albums. I mean, they're not twin albums, but after a few years go by, and then you have a couple albums come out back to back years. Uh, what, what, what's your take on those two?
1: yeah and, and it's, it's perceptive of you to say that you know like the that they're twinned because uh they were done at the same time it was just a, again a question of saying okay the stuff that's sort of singer songwriter that's going into the good faith pile and this other stuff and now smooth jazz radio i'm starting to get airplay there so now handiwork is kind of like okay then uh i'm i'm gonna try and make something that you know works to that format and um and that was the instrumental record. So, you know, I didn't put them both out at the same time. First, the instrumental, then the singer-songwriter one. But, I mean, you got to understand, too, that in my real life, <laughs> yeah, but, well, which is to say I don't have an unreal life, but um, it, like b- back in the real world, I- I'm still getting, uh, you know, uh, agents that book me to play classic rock gigs. I'm going playing bars. They want to hear the Evergreen Triumph material, you know. so um, now the duality of my life is, you know, it's there that, I, um, you know, I, I've got these things that I'm making to sell off the stage kind of merch table things um, and downloading off my site or you know whatever people are ordering from my website. But I'm still going out and playing all the old trash stuff. So haven't given up who I was. That's still a part of who my personality is. I'm getting my yayas yeah, out playing, you know, classic rock band gigs, but you know. Uh, as a mm-hmm. as a recording artist, as a, as a writer, now I'm I'm really able to kind of um, indulge myself on the other side.
0: Then you you spent you mentioned duality and the concept of two, Dave Dunlop and the strung out troubadours, and is someone you would perform with for a long time before the album comes out in two thousand six. So what finally led to putting this down to tape tape and putting that out on an actual album in two thousand six?
1: Yeah um well i mean david played in my band and uh then and i had made the transition what i would get a lot of gigs that that would be solo gigs you know they they didn't have the budget to hire a whole band but you know they they had enough that they could pay for me and then i would okay i'm gonna bring a side man. and i had a piano player named marty anderson i was using him on a lot of stuff but then dave it went two guitars sort of became a bit more of a kind of a uh it, you could be a little bit more rock and roll with it There we could be a little bit more ass kicking. And it was, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, Dave sort of became the guy, but then I kind of felt like, geez, we should be writing together. We should be um, making something that is reflecting what's happening live on the stage stage with the two of us. And then also it was a, you know, just a bone for him that he could now, um, have something that was selling at the merch table that he was going to make money. <laughs> so, we formed stronger troubadours and we played a lot of small clubs and, and we were touring all over North America and doing that. But now we had product to sort of back it up.
0: The following year uh-huh. in two thousand seven comes some rock and that's Liberty Manifesto. So is it your decision at that point to go more in into that direction after a while of not a lot of like aggressive more kind of rock? Is that just like yeah, you had to touch that. You had to go back and find that genre again. What was your motivation to go in that direction, thirteen years ago? Um, I had fallen in
1: with a group of folks uh, out of London, Ontario called Jeans and Classics. Was his, uh, Peter Brennan was this guy that wrote arrangements for a rock band to front an orchestra. And he would take it all over North America and play with orchestras. And so he wanted to have me be involved and do these things and then wanted to do a Rick Emmett show and use my music to to play with orchestras. And And through that, I met a a vocalist, a guy named Mike Schott. And Mike had been in a band called Von Groove. And Mike, a very sort of energetic, ambitious kind of a guy, and he had a studio. Um, And he said, uh, you you know, you got to make a rock record. So it was really more him pushing me then you know me going. Oh, I can't wait to do this. I was quite happy doing what I was doing, but he was like, "Come on, man, let's let's do it. Let's let, like a we'll partner some, something up and we'll and we'll put this out." And I I known from the past a guy that I could make a deal with the re- for the record in, in Europe and and also in Japan. So I knew we'd get our money back for all the time and energy we were putting into it, and uh, so. Uh, I did it, and and uh, I, I didn't regret it. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, Mike was really pushing that towards being a kind of a progressive rock, hard rock, heavy rock kind of a thing and uh, really deeply into the whole Pro Tools thing now, you know, you know, making music with computers. Like, he would just layer stuff. I'd play a guitar solo, and I think it was great, and he'd say, okay, let's double it, and let's triple it. Let, let's put a harmony <laughs> on it, you know, let, Like, it was just, uh, it got a little out of hand, but uh, it was real education for me.
0: Two more studio albums in the list here, and then we'll recap back to the two live albums, Push and Pull and Marco's Secret Songbook. And I found myself, again, drawn a little bit more towards some of this material. It gets a I'm, I'm picking up more ethereal vibes in these and this comes out in 2009 and 2012. So a little bit separate in there. Comment these comment, excuse me, on these last two, uh, studio albums in this batch that was recently.
1: Right. Well, push and pull was again, you know, that was a record that Dave and I, we wanted to sort of move a little bit more urban, a little bit more R and B groove, smooth jazz radio ish kind of, uh, record. And, um, It was just a logical kind of growth from uh, out of what we'd done on the Strong Troubadour stuff, which was a little bit more folky and acoustic guitar-ish. This allowed electric guitars and jazz guitars to sort of come to the fore a little more. Um, And then Marcos was, it was this project that I'd been, uh, it had been in the back of my head for a long, long time. And I had uh, got a gig where I I, uh, sang the part of uh, Captain Robert Walton in in a in a musical about Frankenstein. And so my gig was, uh, I would sing at the beginning of the show, like, people don't really understand the old Mary Shelley framing of Frankenstein, but it it had its own frame, which was a guy is in a boat uh, locked in the ice, north of England, and um, this monster literally shows up across the frozen tundra and, and, uh, you know, is on the boat, and then tells this fantastic tale, this story, And then at the end, dies on the boat. So my gig was sing at the beginning, go backstage and sit around for an hour and a half, and then come back out and sing right at the end, take the bows with the cast. And so when I'm sitting backstage for an hour and a half and I'm in this music theater world, I started dreaming about this this project of a guitar player traveling around the world and, and experiencing lots of different styles. Because Every time I do interviews, people would say, oh, Rick, you know, you play classical and you play jazz and you play blues and you play rock and like so many styles. And I thought I need to f- have a frame so that I can hang all the different styles in it. And, and uh, so I called him Marco because he's traveling the world like Marco Polo. And, and um, yeah, so, you know, I envisioned it as a very simple thing, but I had Mike shot and functioning as sort of the engineer co-producer and mike would, like i would do a little guitar piece and then i would come back three days later and mike would have added horns drums stand-up bass you know and i would be going mike what's happening here this is just supposed to be like a troubadour going around the world playing his little tunes he's going yeah but doesn't it sound great isn't it awesome like i go yeah okay yes and then now we're adding strings and orchestra things and now we're going to get a narrator and the narrator's going to tell the story and there's going to be so before, you know, it, we've got like this moody blues meets Tales from Topographic Oceans kind of, you know, yeah. concept. Right yeah. OK, you know, great. so, um, But I got it out of my system, Luke. That's the main theme. You know, it was like, finally, OK, this is done and I can sort of move on. It's artistic expression, that's
0: the most important part. Lastly, here are the two live albums and totally different ones. I mean, there's live at Berkeley, which was right after the after those first three, and then live at Hughes Room, of course, from the strung out Troubadours. Um any particular reason why you wanted to capture I mean, I know live at Hughes Room with all the live performance you you'd have with Dave over the years, I understand that, but anything in particular that made these two like or a rephrase moments live. To create a live album from them, and decide let's do a live album from this and I'll do a live album from that.
1: Okay, so uh, you know we're we're in this indie world, and and uh, you know what I used to tell my students in, in class, you know, the, facing the indie world is, kids, it's like you're starting up a bakery. It's going to be a, your own small business. You're 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 not even on Main Street. You're you're off Main Street, and you're going to have to get up at you know five thirty every morning, and you're going to have to start baking fresh stuff. So live albums are a chance to, you know, you can put fresh stuff out there on your website. Uh, So that's kind of one of the impetuses of it. Impetus, is the plural of impetus, (laughs) impetai? Anyways, uh, (laughs) so um, uh, Berkeley was, uh, I was doing gigs that would be booked by fans from my website. And then there were two guys in Boston that sort of partnered up on one and said, "Let's make a big deal out of this. Let's do. Let's get the recital hall at Berkeley." And you know, so I'm going to Berkeley, and you know, Berkeley has a, a, a kind of a, an international reputation as this, you know, heavy-duty kind of music place. So then I think, geez, if I brought in a sound man that really knew how to do some recording, I could, you know, get an eight-track machine and we could do a live thing." And so I had been doing these solo gigs taking out um, uh, uh, like little mini discs and, and, and performing to tracks and stuff. And that was before I sort of developed the, the the duo kind of thing, take a keyboard player out or, or take another guitar player. Because I, I got away from the idea of having to use backing tracks. I, I didn't like that. Plus, another thing was starting to happen around that time where the whole, you know, Rick as a solo guy was turning into, um, Rick as a kind of a storyteller. So the Berkeley thing kind of captured the storytelling element. We left all of that in there, and the crowd reaction and stuff. It was great. So um, that worked. That was the story of that one. And um, and then the, the live at Hughes was literally just a question of okay, you know, the troubadours again. We want to have product to sell live off stage, and you know, this experience that that people are getting. It had sort of developed to this point where Dave and I would have this these guitar duels and things and. We didn't have any of that on record. So we wanted to kind of have something that would be a, a, a documentation of what the the live show between us was like. So, and Hughes Room was a magic place. It's no longer with us. It's uh, gone the way of all flesh <laughs> gone the way of all <laughs> clubs. You know, live music is uh, really suffered in the Toronto market, but that place was like five blocks from where I grew up. So there was a kind of a, I had a, Again, that sort of spiritual kind of connection to that place. Uh, Yeah, it was like I was going home. Mm -hmm. I did air quotes again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a wealth of material for people to listen to that have a lot easier access to. They have a lot easier access to listen to it now. Eleven solo works, the two live ones, all the studio efforts. Rick Emmett, thanks for taking some time to chat with us today. I encourage anyone who's listened to this, go do what I didn't. Listen through through them all. Find find the special parts. There's a lot to listen to. Take care and all the best with all the work you're doing now and in the future. Thanks, Luke. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You did it. You
1: fit it into 20 I minutes. Did. Well yes. done, sir. Awesome. Good luck with the <laughs> next okay. interview. Bye-bye. Take
0: care. Rick Emmett, really fun interview there. An insightful interview going throughout his discography that is now available to stream. The 11 albums in particular that are now available to stream. RickEmmett.com is his website. R-I-K-E-M-M-E-T-T. RickEmmett.com. got a whole lot of information there. You can learn about a lot of his other solo material going right up through this year, even into 2020. Have uh, releases, and as I was alluding to, there's there's more to come in the future. You can also uh, follow him on social media as well. This has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing the facilities to do these interviews. You can listen to a lot of these interviews at greatesthits98.1.com. Click on Interviews, and you'll find a lot of these interviews. You can even watch some of these. This one was done via Zoom, so you can watch this at greatesthits98.1.com. you would also find this podcast on a lot of podcast platforms, You name it, there's a fairly decent chance you're going to find it, especially via Apple, Android, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast so you know when new episodes arrive and also rate the podcast preferably higher. That'll get the word spread around a little more. Got time for a quick story. I'm Luke Anthony.